This is Stacey Hillier, and you are listening to the Prophetic Collective Podcast. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to the Prophetic Collective. We love hearing all of your feedback. Why don't you check out this testimony from one of our listeners? I love how you brought the fivefold team from your church on the podcast and explained how they all work together. I especially loved how they so honestly share what they love about their fivefold calling and also the struggles of that. I found it all so relatable as our church is stepping into the fivefold model. I'm so excited for the future and how this is all going to play out. Now, back to Stace. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back once again to the podcast. We are in episode six of this new collection called Revival Reflections, and I love receiving your feedback and hearing your testimony. So please do make sure you stay in touch, and I hope you've been enjoying hearing my guests as well as what I'm sharing and what I'm learning through what God is doing. So please do DM me and reach out because I know God's moving everywhere, and I want to hear what he's doing in your corner of the world as well and in your community. We're loving what God is doing in our midst, but we know he's moving everywhere and we do not have the market share on a move of God. So we need one another and we're better together. We're part of global church, a global body. So let me know what he's doing in your midst. Today, I'm going to share another of my learnings during this last, uh, it's just about to be 12 months exactly. And this one is a biggie. It was something or somewhat of a release valve. And I believe it's going to help you. And I actually learned this through error. (laughs) Um, You're welcome. And I'll be pretty honest about what I feel like I would do differently and perhaps what can help you moving forward. So recently, I've actually just come off two weeks really sick. I had influenza A. Guys, it was horrendous. I was literally on death's door. And I'm not joking when I say I would rather give birth. And I've done that four times without drugs. And I'm telling you right now, I would rather give birth and have influenza again. But one of the ways that I actually knew how really sick I was, that there was actually days on end that I had no appetite at all. I wasn't hungry, even though I'd gone through several days without food. In fact, I couldn't even really stomach the thought of food. And that is not like me. But everybody knows that's actually a sign of ill health. That's why when you go to the doctor, they say, talk to me about your appetite, talk to me about your diet, because what we eat or even an appetite is a sign of health or sickness. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Hunger is a sign of spiritual health. So knowing this and understanding this principle, because we talk about it a lot in church, I think one of the things that happened in this season as we perhaps got to like the two to three month mark And we were seeing God do incredible things, like so incredible, signs and wonders with crutches and moon boots and all kinds of things being left at the altar. I noticed that I began to get a little bit familiar even with signs and wonders and familiar with the weight of his presence. And my personal hunger began to wane, if I'm totally honest. It was like Um, You know, if you go to the most amazing steak restaurant or you have the most amazing seafood every meal all day, you pretty soon forget how amazing the meal is. (laughs) You forget how amazing it is that you're eating this quality food and it can actually happen pretty quickly. 
So what actually happened next in my heart and I observed in the life of of our church, I think can be a common pitfall in our churches and our cultures. I think we began to believe the lie that hunger was initiated by us. And we actually began to slip into works, I know I did, and began to sweat. We wore hunger almost like it was a pressure and a responsibility rather than a gift or a grace that we receive when we position ourselves correctly. And this led to us using phrases like get hungry. And I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I even noticed in my worship leading this divide between uh, worshippers on platform and congregation because I was looking at them and I was measuring their hunger based on a whole bunch of worldly standards, but they weren't responding emotionally the way I would have liked them to, the way that would make me feel good. And I, in my heart, I'm like, get hungry, come on, get hungry. And there was this divide. But I was also putting that pressure on myself, like, Stacey, get hungry, want to want him more than anything else. And I was trying to whip something up in my own even personal devotional life. Like I had to conjure up this appetite for Jesus. So I want to clear up a couple of misconceptions or lies that I believed and what the Holy Spirit has taught me because I think people could look at what God is doing in any move of God across the earth and be like, oh, I've just got to be more hungry. I need to be more hungry. And what do I need to do to be more hungry? And that leads to things like opening the word of God and being like, oh, I've got to get something out of this today because I've got to be hungry and I need something to give. And instead of just resting in his presence and receiving the gift of hunger. You see, the thing is that God is the initiator of relationship, always has been, and God desires intimacy with us actually more than we desire intimacy with him. And so the trap we can fall into is talking to ourselves, berating ourselves, and even those we lead with statements like, I just have to get hungry, I just have to get hungry. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that it's driven and instigated by us when, in fact, everything in our relationship with God is a response to revelation of who he is and it's something he instigates and he initiates and something he desires even more than us. God is always the initiator. In fact, he is so intentional with intimacy He went after man first. He had no need to create men. Think about it, like the Trinity. There was no need, right? Yet he had a desire for relationship and for intimacy. So he created us in his image. God was hungry for us. God was hungry for relationship with us before we even knew what hunger was. So he made man in his image He chose us before we chose him. He starts the story. He'll complete the story. His desire has never been that you and I would be workers or slaves, but to have children and friends in relationship with him. So let's look together at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, a very well-known passage. Then God said, let us, the Trinity, make man in our image after our likeness. That word image there is the word salem. You should look that up in the Hebrew. It's so full of beautiful meaning and it becomes the word econ in um, the Greek in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18. Do a word study on that. It will change your life because being created in God's image is what gives us our sense of value and our authority. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we can often read verse 26 like it is linear. God created them, then he set them about straight away having dominion and calling a fish a fish, a clownfish, go at them, calling corn corn, calling, giving trees names because the way we read is one plus one is two. But instead what's happening here is it's describing that man was made in their image and we were made to have dominion. We're not yet being told to exercise it. So verse 27, so God created man in his own solemn image. In the solemn of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. Skipping down to verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. He looked at man and woman and said, very good. He beheld us and we now live with this invitation to behold him. And there was evening and there was morning and this was the sixth day. So on the sixth day, man and woman are created. God beholds us and says, very, very good, so good. And Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth. We've talked about this in another episode, face to face with God. Eve was taken as one of Adam's ribs, formed with God's hand. First thing she sees is God's face. And we're created on this sixth day. God beholds us and said, it's very good. And we're created to have dominion. But he doesn't set us straight away to exercising that dominion. In the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, so right after man and woman were created, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So man and woman are created and God sets about resting, not telling them get to work go do work, go have dominion, go name the animals. None of that yet. Instead, God says, I want to rest with you. I've created you. I want to get to know you. I want you to get to know me. Let's live in relationship together. I want to rest on you, with you, and in you. So God rests on, in, and with us, and we rest in and through and with him. God's the instigator of relationship. God's the instigator of intimacy right from the garden. And of course, we know Adam and Eve sin and then they break this intimacy with the Father. And even though they would walk with him in the cool of the afternoon, uh, they hid from him because they'd broken union. And so then the rest of the Bible is God setting about and through his son, Jesus, ultimately bringing us back to this place of intimacy. But we see here, God's the instigator of intimate relationship with us, that he cares more about resting in us and on us and with us. And anywhere God rests is holy. He cares more about resting in us and on us than what we can do for him. And I just love this thought that he's the instigator. So they weren't straight straight off to work. Instead, he said, I'm going to rest with them. I'm going to be with them. And then out of that place of intimacy came purpose and work. And intimacy came first. God was saying all of life flows from intimacy. I want to be with you more than I want you to work for me. Think about John 15, which you all know is a life-defining passage. I'm going to flick there in my Bible. This is where Jesus shares with his disciples and with us. And, you know, the context of this beautiful passage is that 
Jesus has just gone through this discourse where he's promising the disciples the Holy Spirit will come and he says to them at the end of chapter 14, rise, let's go, we're moving, we're on the move now. And so he's walking with his disciples and as he walks with them, because God's intention, the garden, God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the afternoon, then Jesus comes He's this tangible manifestation of God, the Son here on earth, and he walks with his disciples. God has always wanted and been the initiator of walking through all of life with us. And so Jesus is walking with his disciples and historians and commentators would tell us that they were heading to the Garden of Gethsemane and they were coming up from the Valley of Kidron and walking together and in front of them was the temple in Jerusalem. And on the outside of the temple was this overlay of the vine, which was all throughout the Old Testament, the symbol of God's chosen people, Israel. And Jesus begins to speak to his disciples as they walk together. And he's pointing to this vine on the temple. And he's saying, see that vine, which the disciples who knew the Old Testament and the Torah would have been like, oh, the symbol of Israel. He said, I am that vine. So he's declaring here, I'm the son of God. I am God's chosen here with you. And so he's, as they're walking and talking, just imagine them walking and talking as he says this, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from him, we can do nothing, but in him, we can do everything. I just love this reality. And you can see in these verses that, again, it talks about like Jesus is the vine. We're the branches, but it says that the Father is the vine dresser. Another translation, that word vine dresser, he's the gardener. He is the cultivator of intimacy. He is the cultivator. You think about, you know, an orchardist who's growing, you know, rows and rows of apple trees or orange trees or pear trees and they don't go out to a tree that's not bearing fruit as the gardener and yell at the tree why aren't you bearing fruit try harder no the responsibility is on the gardener the responsibility is on the orchardist to maybe even pull that tree up and put it in different soil or to prune it not to prune it to punish it but so it can have perfect union i also love the thought that jesus is the vine And we are the branches that are attached to the vine. Now, is the responsibility for um, remaining attached, um, is it the vine that bears the weight or the branch? The vine actually hangs on to the branch. The vine's the instigator of taking the weight. Our only role is to abide, is to abide in Jesus and to yield to the gardening and the cultivating of the Father. So, It's not our own efforts that causes fruitfulness. You know that every time you feel hungry for the presence of the Lord, it's grace inviting you to be satisfied. Hunger's not necessarily an aggressive act. It's his kindness. He causes or initiates 
the gift of hunger, not to pressure us, not to obligate us, but because he wants to give us himself. I love how Leslie Crandall puts this. She has this beautiful e-course on intimacy that I'm going to link in the show notes today. She says, every time we are hungry, it's not to lead us to frustration, but to lead us to a feast. So when I'm hungry, he doesn't starve me so that I could prove myself as a good enough Christian to receive him. He satisfies. Matthew 5 verse 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When I'm hungry, it's his grace inviting me into more. And I just have to be awake and respond to his constant initiation. He is initiating hundreds of times a day. He's trying to start a conversation with us hundreds of times a day. So what this does leave for us is to abide and to live aware of his initiation, his calling, his wooing, his inviting, and to yield. You know, I'll never forget the day that I was talking to the Lord about I wanted to want him more than anything else. I wanted to desire him above all other desires. And Holy Spirit whispered to me as I meditated on 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he'd spoken to me about this when it comes to worship, but not hunger. And he said to me, Stacey, don't try harder, look longer. If you want your appetite to change, if you want to hunger more for Jesus, don't strive for it, don't work for it, don't try harder, look longer. So if you want to be hungry today, I just release you from the pressure of I have to get hungry. Instead, you can lean back and rest receive his initiation, receive the truth that he wants intimacy with you more than you want it with him and not try harder, but just behold him and look at him longer. You see, when we understand that he's the initiator of intimacy and the striving ceases and the pressure comes off, you can behold him. And as you behold him, your appetite for other things just completely changes I found myself, I don't want the things I wanted before, not because I tried to prune it off myself, but because I yielded and allowed him to prune, knowing it's because he wanted greater intimacy and greater union, that this was a gift from him. And I just don't hunger for the same things anymore. He, the perfect gardener, the expert gardener, who knows what is needed for me and for you to bear fruit for the kingdom. He comes and prunes things off us and changes our appetites as we simply behold him and live in intimacy with him. You see, this was another misconception I had, another pressure I I felt was I have to stay on fire. I would berate myself like, stay on fire, stay on fire. Why are you getting apathetic? God, he doesn't talk that way to us. He reminded me he is the initiator. He always has been. He is the source. So don't try harder. Look longer. And I was reminded, Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16, where it talks about Jesus resurrected Christ, head white as wool, feet like burnished bronze, eyes of fire, voice like many waters. And he reminded me, you know, if if you want to be on fire, Behold the man Jesus with eyes of fire. And as I behold him, I get transformed into his image. And before I know it, I have eyes of fire and zeal and passion for the Lord. But I don't have to work for it. 
I rest and I receive his initiation and I lean into the revelation of who he is. And as I behold him, I become like him. Think about Moses. Exodus records that he would come out of time face to face with God. He got this revelation of Adam and Eve created with the face of God. And he goes face to face with God and he would come out and he would glow. You know, that revelation passage talks about Jesus was like pure, shone, shone like the pure sunlight. And Moses took on the composition of the nature of God himself. He would come out of God's presence and being face to face with him. And he would have a light and a glow that would come off him. His face was like the sun shining in full strength is what Revelation says. So Moses was literally transformed into God's image by beholding him. Where everyone else stayed at a distance in fear and they fell into idolatry because they're created to worship. So they created something else to worship because they felt the fear of the Lord. This is in Exodus 19 and 20 and 34. They feel, you know, God comes and visits corporately on Sinai. There's earthquake, there's fire, all the things. There's this thick darkness. The tribes are stationed around the mountain with presence at the center. This beautiful corporate encounter. And they're so afraid. They say, Moses, you go in for us. And so Moses goes in. He's transformed into God's image. They stay at a distance and create an idol. And we've created many, many idols by staying at a distance rather than beholding and becoming. So what are some things we can do to stay aware of this initiation that's constantly being offered up? First one is behold him in the word daily as an individual. You know, so often I think that we can expect these spectacular encounter moments and our human nature is to gravitate to the spectacular. But hunger is tended to and fostered in the mundane. The initiation is often in the mundane. In the same way that you can't tell me what you ate for breakfast six weeks ago, Bill Johnson talks about this, in your everyday ordinary life, your life is proof that you did eat of the choices you made. And this is what intimacy with God is like, what abiding is like. Think about Apostle Paul. He had that spectacular encounter on the road where he went from Saul to Paul. Life changed in a moment. But he didn't have many of those. Really, he had one or two very marked ones. So often we want this daily road to Damascus moment and we miss his initiation in the ordinary. But we can't live encounter to encounter. And I had begun to live revival service to revival service. And my hunger was waning because of it. I thought I could only see him in the spectacular. Hunger will wane if you simply wait for the spectacular and miss God in most of your life. So when we read the word, rather than looking for like these spectacular moments that transform us, don't look for you, look for him. And take the time to meditate on him and behold him. Stacey, what does that look like? Well, when we're reading John 15 and we study the word and we know that this was Jesus walking and talking with his disciples, if we meditate on this and we look at the man, Jesus, the discipler, who walked and talked with his people, as we behold the man Jesus, the discipler, guess who we become? Disciplers, not with a four-step program, but who walk and talk with our disciples and break down the scriptures and say, look at this, Jesus is the vine, or look at this situation in your life and my life. How do we find Jesus in that? That's what it looks like to behold him in his word. Like what aspect of himself is he revealing to you in what you just read? Like you can find him in a genealogy. The start of Matthew, this genealogy, 
who God, Father God chose to bring Jesus through, meditate on that. Meditate on who God is in that, his compassion and his mercy, and there weren't people he overlooked or who had to be qualified. And you will become a different leader. You will become a different person by beholding God himself. Second thing I would say is corporately ensure worship is centered on beholding the beauty of Jesus, not on getting hungry, stay hungry. Because when people behold the beauty of Jesus, they'll be ruined for anything less. You know, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18 is basically, um, Samuel Whitfield describes this as Apostle Paul's summary of his discipleship or his discipleship approach. And it makes sense because his experience was he was Saul, he was one way, he had one encounter where he saw Jesus, he became a different man through beholding the face of Jesus and he became Paul. So 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18, he's like, here's how you disciple people. You teach them how to behold. Teach them how to behold Jesus. And as they behold the face of Jesus, the man Jesus, as they look at him, they get transformed from one state, a caterpillar, into another state like a butterfly, literally unrecognizable states, one from the other, and they become more like Jesus. So when people behold the beauty of Jesus, they become ruined for anything less. When they look at the initiator fully and rightly, they will hunger and thirst for righteousness only. If worship is centered on us, what we feel, what we need, we end up creating God in our own image. Or I love the way Beth Moore quotes this. She's like, we begin to think of God as a very big us. We're meant to be little hymns. That's the right way around. We're meant to be conformed to his image. So in our corporate worship, what we're learning to do is not so much sing about, I'm going to be hungry, I'm going to stay hungry, although those things have their place. What we're learning to do is is sing songs that disciple people and create opportunity for people to behold the man Jesus, to sing about how fascinated they are with him, to tell him how much they love him, to behold him and to be transformed. Third way of receiving the gift of hunger and seeing his initiation is ensure all discipleship is centered on equipping individuals to behold the beauty of Jesus for themselves. You know what happened in that encounter in Exodus 19 and 20? When the corporate presence came, God's intention was actually that everybody would come up the mountain when the trumpet blasted. But they were so afraid of the way God came. They said, Moses, you go for us and then come back and tell us what God says because we're too afraid to go in. Well, God's intention was always to talk to all of humanity. Exodus 19 says that we would all be a kingdom of priests. Right since the beginning, that's been his intention, that all of us would be the priesthood of believers. And so instead, they put this middle person in place and stay at a distance. And God's never had that intention. His intention has been that every single one of his disciples would be a priest that ministers to him without distance, that knows how to behold the beauty of Jesus for themselves. Otherwise, people need an intermediate. They need pastors. They need worship leaders who bring their hunger to fuel theirs. They need their own appetite to mature to be a mature disciple, they have to have their own appetite. They can't live off yours. I mean, do the people you're discipling know more about God than they know how to look at him? (laughs) So our responsibility becomes to equip them, to model to them, to together behold Jesus because this is the only thing that can transform them. And this is the doorway to them knowing the instigation of the Lord himself rather than knowing the promptings of you, the leader. Well, we love to keep people dependent on us. It's kind of like this Messiah complex we have. 
but God never intended for the ministry and the priesthood to be the role of a few. He wanted it to be every single believer. So we have to share with people from our well-known pathways of intimacy. We have to teach beholding from the pulpit. We have to sing songs that disciple people to behold Jesus. When we're one-on-one with people, we need to talk of Jesus and what we're beholding about him and who he's making us to be. Number four, how do we stay aware of his initiation in corporate gatherings when it doesn't feel like the spiritual temperature is where it should be? We need to trust God enough to not admonish people to behavior modification and emotionalism and instead lead and facilitate beholding moments of revelation that will lead to spirit and truth response. I'm going to say that all again. In corporate gatherings, when it doesn't feel like the spiritual temperature is where it should be, don't admonish people into behavior modification and emotionalism. Lead and facilitate beholding moments of revelation that lead to spirit and truth response. You know, as I've talked about on the podcast before, there is a very big difference between reaction and response. One requires beholding God The other is motivated by navel-gazing and stroking our own emotions. And they can both look like worship, but only one is. The fifth way we can stay aware of his initiation and his gift of hunger is understand that if people are beholding him and there's still this blockage of no hunger or no fire, that we have a responsibility to help people with their inner healing and deliverance you know, maybe soul ties or numbing spirits or whatever that looks like. I've just come to accept that deliverance is beautiful. It's freedom. It's the sound of freedom. And in the last days, we're going to have to raise people who know how to deliver people of demons and people who know how to minister to others in a healing and freedom so that people can receive the gift of hunger and can receive the gift of fire. So we just deal with it. We don't freak out. We love all the different manifestations of freedom and we just get over being too cool for it. So if we lead in ways that pressure to be hungry, we're creating performance cultures. But there is rest in hunger because it's found in developing an appetite through intimacy. So there you go. (laughs) That's another one of my revival reflections. Your key takeaway today, if you want to increase your hunger, If you want to stay on fire, don't try harder. Look at Jesus longer. Next week, we are going to talk about the antidote to intensity, joy. We're going to talk about joy in revival. I can't wait to talk to you then. Hey, do you know how much it helps me when you do all the things, when you rate, when you review, when you share this on social media? It's not so that I can receive any glory. It's so more and more people can hear about the beautiful ways that Jesus is moving. Love you and talk to you really soon. 